A couple of years ago, both my daughter Allison and I ran into some problems with the same dentist. Now, Allison got the worst end of the deal because she had what began as a, a cavity that needed a small filling, and she ended up losing her tooth and had to get a root canal. So we came to this point where we had to go in for the dreaded consultation slash confrontation. And after explaining our concerns and our issues, the, the dentist dropped this language bomb on us. All right? She started saying things like intodontic treatment in the UL5, considering the temporomandibular effects on the occlusal and mesial parts of the tooth. And Allison and I are both like, what? Well, we didn't understand what she was saying. Now, every profession and every group has their own lingo, you know, their own vernacular, their insider language. And doctors are just one example. I think the worst has got to be lawyers, right? Teenagers have their own lingo, right? That's why you can't understand half of what your kid says or your grandchild. Well, church people, Christians have their own lingo too. It's called Christianese, right? We say stuff that no one else can understand unless they've been around the church for a while. Um, we say some things <laughs> that don't make sense, right? Just sounds weird unless you have some explanation to go along with it. Uh, just think about some of these things and, and how they might sound to somebody who walks into a church for the very first time in their lives. Right. The Lord laid it on my heart. Okay. Or how about this one? I was having a quiet time. Are you better now? Or let's do life together. I'm not sure we know each other that well. Or something that we say often when somebody's puppy dies, or even worse, uh, everything happens for a reason. Right? Probably not our best move. Or there's this one, we are the body of Christ. Are you guys some sort of strange cult? Or take communion time, for instance. Let us partake of the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, this is just sounding plain creepy now. Or Take the songs that we sing and how they might sound to somebody who, who's brand new to the faith. All right, there's this lyric, uh, when heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. You mean like a sexual assault? Or, or even worse are the original lyrics to that song. Have you ever heard those before? The original line that goes there is not an unforeseen kiss. It's when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, right? There's a mental image that you need in the middle of worship in church. Or, or this classic refrain from a song of the same title, I could sing of your love forever, right? And then you seemingly sing that song, that line forever in the song. But I could sing of your love forever? Really? Could you? I mean, wouldn't you want to eat or take a nap at some point? Now, I know a lot of our terminology has some very deep and, and even sentimental meanings to us. And the songs that we sing, well, 
one person's stupid song is somebody else's favorite song that just really draws them close to God. Now, as a preacher, I try very hard in my preaching and teaching to be understandable, whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or you're not even sure you believe Jesus really ever existed. But when I use Christian lingo, I try to define it. I try to explain what it means. And if you ever hear me say something that's like, whoosh, you know, what does that mean? What's he talking about? Just ask me. I'll, I'll try to explain it to you. Um, well, in this message, we're going to look at one of those Christian lingo words. And the word is gospel. Right? Can you use that in a sentence? Have you heard the gospel? We proclaim the gospel. Uh, we listen to gospel music. Well, what is gospel? And why is it such a big deal? Well, our core verse this week in our Core 52 series is a verse that all by itself doesn't sound like it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which simply is an introduction to the book. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the reason why this is one of the core 52 verses is because it's one of the first mentions of gospel in the New Testament. Not in terms of the order of the, the, the books in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in the chronological order that the books were written in. I'll talk more about that in a minute. So, what does gospel mean? Well, the short answer is that gospel means good news, right? Like, guess what? I've got some good news. You know, whenever you hear the word gospel, you could just substitute the words good news. Now, give a little more detailed explanation here. Originally, gospel wasn't a churchy word, a religious word at all. In the first century, good news of any sort was gospel, right? Like, I've got good news and I've got bad news. <laughs> Two friends, both avid baseball fans, had made a vow to each other that whichever one was the first one to die would come back and tell the other one what heaven was like. Well, sure enough, the first one died, and he came back, and here's what he told his friend. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news, the, the gospel, is that there is baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're pitching on Friday. All right, bad joke. But the word gospel itself comes from an old English word, godspell, godspell, meaning good spell, like a good tale or a good story. All right? And that the word that's actually used in the Greek New Testament is the word evangelion which simply means good news, evangelion. And if you saw this word spelled out, it would look familiar because it's where we get our word evangelism, all right? And those who shared the good news were called evangelos or evangelist. Now, some variation of this word is used more than 125 times in the New Testament. 
Now, here's another curious tidbit. Both of these words are based on the Greek word for angel, angelos, which uh, simply means messenger. Right? An angel wasn't necessarily a spiritual being sent with a message from God. All right, uh, Messengers could be anybody, a person who's been sent with a message. Um, but we're used to seeing angels of the, you know, the spiritual sword in the Bible. But in the ancient biblical world, uh, battlefield commanders and generals would send angels, messengers from the front lines after winning a key battle to announce the good news, the gospel, the, the evangel uh, back home. For instance, you've probably heard the story of Marathon, right? The origin of our modern sporting event, a marathon. In 490 BC, the Greeks were victorious over the Persians in the Battle of Marathon. Uh, and so there was a gospel evangelist, a messenger, Agalos, named Phidippides, who ran all the way from Marathon to Athens, a distance of little more than 26 miles to deliver the good news that the Greeks had won. Of course, as the story goes, upon delivering the good news, he died. Uh, there's a lot of marathon runners that wish that Phidippides had died after, say, 20 miles. Then they wouldn't have to run as far. Now, we see this exact same kind of thing even in the Bible. 1 Samuel 31, chapter 9, the Philistines defeated the army of King Saul, and it says that they, quote, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, the gospel, to the house of their idols and to their people. Kings and emperors also sent out angels or messengers, evangelists, um, to cities and towns all over the empire. Right? And they would make important announcements. They would evangelize the good news from the capital. Now, of course, these messengers were paid to make the king or the emperor look good. So whatever news they brought was always good news, gospel. Of course, politics being what politics is, these announcements were filled with spin and embellishment and sometimes outright lies. Uh, Mark Moore in, in the Core 52 book provides this example from Caesar Augustus. This is one of the announcements brought by these messengers to the, the people of the realm. Because providence has ordered our life in a divine way. And since the emperor, through his epiphany, has exceeded the hopes of former gospel or former good news, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will ever surpass him. And since the birthday of the God, all right, it's talking about the emperor's birthday there, was for the world the beginning of his gospel, his good news, may it therefore be decreed that blah, 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 blah. All right? It's nothing but pure pompous political 
propaganda, right? Augustus Caesar is claiming to be the son of a god and that his good news is better than all the good news that came before him, and it's better than all of the good news that will come after him, right? So in the Bible, in Bible times, you have a culture where people are used to messengers who come and proclaim good news of the kingdom. So it's only natural that the, the early Christians and the writers that were inspired to write the New Testament, that they came along and they adopted this gospel language, this evangelism lingo, to say that we are messengers sent from God with real good news of a kingdom that is beyond this world, good news of a king that, that is eternal, right? He doesn't have a, a birthday in the sense that the king does, you know, because he is forever. Good news from a king who is the true son of the true God. Right? So in using this uh, term, gospel or, or uh, evangelism, evangel, not only were they exalting Jesus, but it was also a thinly veiled insult toward the Roman emperor, right? Caesar claims to give you good news, but we all know he really doesn't, right? Caesar claims to be a divine son of God, but he really isn't. But Jesus, he really is. Now, here I should mention one difference between how the word gospel was used in the ancient world and, and how it's used in the Bible. Um, in the Greek and Roman world, gospel was almost always used in the plural, meaning one good tiding amongst many others. But in the New Testament, it's almost always in the singular, right? It is the good news of God in Jesus. It is, it is to emphasize the point that Jesus is the good news, and there is no other, right? So gospel is good news. Now, there's a second way in which we use the word that's a little more specific. We use the word gospel to refer to the first four books of the New Testament, right? There's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel of Mark, of Luke, and of John, right? And we call those the four gospels. If you ever hear a preacher talk about the four Gospels, know that he's talking about one or the first four books of the New Testament. And they're the only four books of the Bible that we call Gospels. And the reason we call them Gospels actually comes right here from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark was very likely the first of the four Gospels written. And there's several reasons why we believe this, and it's, it's very likely the case. Uh, don't need to really worry about all that here. But in this verse, he calls his biography of Jesus, his life story of Jesus, a gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right? And then Mark goes on to use the word gospel like seven times in 16 chapters. All right? So this was a big, a big idea to Mark, this, this idea of good news. It was important to him. Now, whether or not Mark meant the gospel as a title for the book, we don't know, but it became so, the gospel according to Mark. So when the other life stories of Jesus were written, Matthew, 
and Luke and John, they were called Gospels too. So in this sense, Gospel is a physical thing. It's a book with written words. Now, from here, there is a third way we use the word Gospel, where we kind of stretch the word then from the physical book to refer simply to the story of Jesus. Even if we don't mean one of the first four books of the New Testament, gospel is the story of Jesus. All right, so in this sense, gospel is a message. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's a story. It's a true story, but it's a story nonetheless. So you might hear Christians talk about the gospel story. Well, this is the sense they're using the word. Now, the gospel story could refer to the whole story of Jesus. All right, from his birth uh, to his ministry on earth with his teaching and all of his miracles to his death and resurrection and even all the way to his second coming. Right? The whole thing could be considered gospel, or maybe just certain parts of it could be considered gospel. But in this way, gospel is, is the story of Jesus. Now, there's a final way we use the word gospel that I want to tell you about. Many times, especially preachers and teachers, will use the word gospel with a little more precision to refer to the plan of salvation. The gospel in this sense are the parts of the Jesus story and our response to them that brings about salvation. So the gospel on this level is that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for every wrong thing, every wrong thought, every wrong word that you've ever done, that you've ever thought, that you've ever said, or will ever in the future, right? And if you trust in him and you follow him, he will forgive you of every wrong thing, what the Bible calls sin. And then he will make you a part of his family, right? God will adopt you as his child. You will be a son or a daughter of God. And Jesus will look at you and he will call you his brother, his sister, and you will be a part of his family for all of eternity. All right, that's the plan of salvation and that is also the gospel. The Apostle Paul uses the word gospel, I think, in this sense, in Romans 1, verse 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, the very first word in the original version of Mark, in the Greek New Testament, is the word beginning. Now, ancient writers would often communicate their intention, their meaning, by parking the most important words right up front. And so Mark starts with beginning of the gospel. Now, check this out. The very first word in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis is what? Beginning. 
right? First word uh, of the first gospel in the New Testament, beginning. First word in the Hebrew Bible, beginning. Coincidence? Nah, I don't think so. Um, Mark envisioned his gospel as a, a counterpoint to the book of Genesis, right? Genesis is a record of, of the beginning of God's creation, the creation of the world, the creation of his plan of salvation, the creation of his people, the, the Jews. Now, the gospel of Mark is the beginning of God's work to restore and redeem his creation, to fulfill his promises to his people. Mark is saying that, that God is at work right now, just as he was at the beginning, that what God is doing through Jesus is just as important as what he did with creation, as what he did with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. I love what James Edwards writes in his book on Mark. He says, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world, for in Jesus a new creation is now at hand. Now, Mark's beginning is significant in another way as well. He doesn't say that his account is the gospel or that he tells the whole gospel. He says that his book is the beginning of the gospel. Right? So the gospel doesn't end with the end of Mark. Jesus' story doesn't end with the resurrection. The gospel is not over. The good news isn't finished with the last chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? The gospel doesn't end when Jesus ascends back into heaven. It's only beginning. It's just started. The gospel story continued in the book of Acts with the church that began with only 120 believers. And from there... It blossomed into an empire-wide phenomenon. There were times that people were added to the kingdom by the thousands. The good news of Jesus spread, and churches were planted on three different continents. And if you read the book of Acts, and you read the last chapter, Acts 28, it doesn't really have an ending. All right? You talk about a story that leaves you hanging, that's the book of Acts, right? because the gospel continues. Mark is just the beginning of the gospel. In Acts, it continues, and the story goes on. The gospel continues throughout 2,000 years of church history. Right? Kings tried to destroy the gospel. Armies marched against it. Decrees were issued to outlaw it. Believers were fed to lions and burned at the stake and, and had their heads chopped off. Bibles were banned and burned, and Satan did everything he could to erase the good news from the face of the planet. But still, the gospel continued. And the gospel continues today. The gospel continues in your life, right? You are a part of the gospel story. So what will your part of the story say? Right? How will it go? And what part of that story might be written now, today, this week, this year? Right? Could this be that pivotal point in the story where the whole story changes? Where one decision becomes a watershed moment where one small change 
changes everything. You see, this part of the gospel story isn't written by Mark. Oh, it's still inspired by God, and it flows through the love of Jesus working in your life. And your hand holds the figurative pen from which, from which the words of this good news flow. So how will your part of the story be written? That remains to be seen. Thank you, and God bless.